Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We beg you to be present to us, to demonstrate to us in indelible ways the depth of your love for us and the depth of the power of your love for us and for the entire world. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Good evening and welcome to St. Bartholomew's. We had a big party last week. It was awesome. Before I forget, I want to thank everyone who volunteered and was paid to do wonderful things to make this courtyard come alive. There were bounce houses that just sprung from the ground. There was pizza. There were beverages. We still have yard signs on our chalk wall. Don't forget about writing on that. Please take a yard sign. If you live in an apartment, it's cool. Just put it by your door. It's supposed to be a little joke. Uh, you don't have to <laughs> put it by your door. But seriously, uh, what a wonderful week we had last week, and I'm so glad that you were part of it if you were here. And we, we took a week off from our lectionary study. And so the last time that we were in Jeremiah, we had heard Jeremiah giving his sort of prosecution of the people of Israel. But tonight, I want you to notice that we have three different lessons from three different periods, if you will, of history. Now, for me, when I think about Holy Scripture, or when I think about the story of God and the story of creation and history, I think about it in four main chapters. There's creation, and shortly thereafter, somewhere after there, is the fall, Adam and Eve sinning in the garden, wanting to become like God, rebelling against God, etc. You know that. And then there's incarnation, which introduces redemption, which would be when Jesus came, Christmas time. Hey, notice, this is also like the church calendar. That's cool. So incarnation and then recreation. So when Christ returns, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so all things will be recreated, recapitulated, is what St. Irenaeus says. But tonight we have three different passages that fall a little bit in three different parts of these chapters of, of fall in that era incarnation just before and just after, and then leading into recreation. But tonight, really the main theme that we see and that we hear is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. You and I are sinners. 
it's interesting. Sin is a concept that unless we are raised in church or unless we are given some sort of formational teaching, we're not super familiar with it. We, I had a wonderful family growing up that taught me right from wrong, and we definitely had morals, but we never really talked about sin. So I remember, I distinctly remember driving to school one day, and we were right by First Presbyterian Church. That's not a sign. We were driving by First Presbyterian Church in Canyon, Texas, and I saw a bumper sticker that said something about sin. And I said, Mom, what's sin? Because I had no idea what sin was. And she explained to me, you know, it's when you do something against God or when you, you rebel against him, or you do something wrong. And the way that I like to think about sin, there, there's a pastor, psychologist, teacher, professor named William Kerwin, and he says sin isn't just an isolated reality. It's not just an objective thing, even though we know of original sin, a theological concept that we can look at in human beings. But sin, when it's committed, is always in proportion to relationship. So when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, what did they do? They didn't just take a piece of fruit and eat of it. They did something against their relationship with God. Thus, initiating this period of history, the fall, or the, the deviation, a little more fancy word, a deviation from God's good will and God's good design and plan for relationship, for intimacy, with his people. And so when we hear the statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, we realize that Jesus coming into the world serves a relational function. It serves a function to bring together two parties that are not equal by any stretch of the means, but to bring together two parties and to make them harmonious again. That's a word we call reconciliation. Now, let's look at this first lesson now remember, it's in a different period of history. This first lesson is from Jeremiah 4. Now remember, in Jeremiah 2, the prophet has already indicted the people of Israel. Remember what he has said to them in chapter 2? I'll just remind you real quickly here, because I've got my Bible. God said to the people of Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who hate, ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. So the people of Israel were like this young, faithful bride. They followed God wherever he led them. And he led them into a land that had not been sown. He led them into a place that would become fruitful, a place where they could be a fulfillment to that promise that God made to Abraham back here. Remember what Abraham or what God told Abram? I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you people, a seed. Land and a promise. So he, these were the people that God had promised Abraham. This was the land he was bringing them into. And they were doing just great. But God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? God goes on to say, Not even the people who have false gods that are regional deities do this. They don't trade their God, their local God, eat local. They don't trade their local God for some other God. Why are you doing this, Israel? So this is the stage now that we have set for Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah is now pronouncing the judgment that is coming to Israel, to Judah specifically. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Judah is going to lay in ruin. 
And the people had this threat of exile looming over them. And the exile means they're going to be taken out of the land that they had been given. Now remember, this has happened once before, right? Abraham and his, his offspring lived in the land. They were fruitful. They multiplied. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had all these sons. Joseph ended up second in charge in Egypt. If you can't follow me, just remember the movie Prince of Egypt. It's always a nice uh, uh, recapitulation of these, of these things. So there they are in Egypt, and the people of Israel, the patriarchs, the sons of the patriarchs, have to move to Egypt because there's this great famine in the land that Joseph knew about. So they're in Egypt. They're not in the land anymore. They're in Egypt, and they endure for 400 years. They become slaves, and God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, does what? He delivers them. He redeems them. He performs this very specific act of salvation to deliver them. Now, here they are back in the land, knowing what it has been to be a wanderer in the wilderness, knowing what it has been to wander from God. And God says to them this, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. What would winnowing or cleansing be? It would be an opportunity for repentance, and still they have an opportunity for repentance. Winnowing or cleansing means that all the chaff, all the stuff that's not necessary, that's not fruit, would get driven away. But this wind is a stronger wind than that. It's so strong, in fact, that Jeremiah's vision of what this desolation will be is like an undoing of creation. If you look in your bulletin there in verses 22 and following. Verse 23, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void into the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking. All the hills moved to and fro. So we've got the heavens, they're shaking, they're formless and without void, a direct quotation, a direct allusion to Genesis chapter one, where God created and spoke, where the spirit was brooding over the waters when all things were formless and, with, uh, formless and void. So this, this judgment upon Israel, this judgment for their sin is going to return things to this sort of primeval state. Not only are there heavens like that, the mountains are quaking, the land is quaking, the birds are nowhere to be found. Verse 25, there's no man anywhere. I looked and behold the fruitful land, this land that God promised to Abraham and gave to Isaac and Jacob is now not fruitful any longer. And all the cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So we get a picture here that what Israel has done, and remember what Israel has done, they traded their God who had made a, relation, a covenant relationship with them. He had made an agreement with them that said, I, God said, I swear before heaven and earth, they're my witnesses that I will be your God and you will be my people. Here is this law. Here are the stipulations of this covenant that tell you how to live in relationship with me. Think of the Ten Commandments that we always say at the beginning of the service in Lent. Here's how you live in relationship with me and here's how you live in relationship with one another. The people of Israel are no longer like this young, devoted, faithful bride 
because they have pursued other gods. They have given themselves over to other ways of worship, which is unheard of. And so God has God's kindness, which would have led them to repentance, is now turning. And if you're a parent, you know this moment where you, get a, you have a little leash, a little more leash, a little more leash, but at some point you realize that you know, something is happening. They're giving themselves over to, you know, maybe your kids aren't doing dehumanizing things like the people of Israel were. You went after worthless things and you became worthless. But still, there's a point to where as parents, you have to say, stop. That's enough. You're going to hurt yourself or someone else. And so God, now remember, Keep the whole story in mind. Creation, fall, incarnation, recreation. In this period, before incarnation and after the fall, God has to perform judgment on his people. He has to take them back to a place where they will listen, where they will worship him. So we have this moment where the covenant people have forsaken their covenant. And God says, I'm bringing judgment, but what does he say? Verse 27. The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. I'm judging you, people of Israel. There are consequences for your actions, but I will not make a full end. So even though into exile they will go, there's still the hope of what? Of return. But in the grand scope, there's still something greater coming to which now we turn. Look at Luke 15. Here's Jesus talking to the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, Jesus has just described the cost of discipleship to these people. He says, you're going to have to forsake father and mother and wife and children to follow me. Following me is not a small thing. It is a very important thing. Now, remember, in the scope of history, we're now after incarnation. Incarnation, December 25th, year zero. Wink, wink. Here's Jesus in his ministry going to the lost sheep of Israel and he's speaking to two sets of people who all have heard him say the great cost of being a follower of him. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. And he tells a story. Now, he tells a story, two stories, that communicate the way that God seeks after whom? Sinners! That's the theme of the sermon. Good job, Bill. See, now all the internet knows for all of history that you knew that Bill H, we'll just say H, to, pro to provide anonymity. Jesus is demonstrating that God seeks after sinners. Passionately. Without rest. We sing a song about it. Even recklessly. That God leaves the 99, like a shepherd, leaves the 99 to find the 
one. Let's look at it more closely. So the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling, and their main issue with Jesus is that he has table fellowship with the tax collectors and sinners. Now, the tax collectors and sinners are people of Israel. They're people of Israel who have been talked to by Jesus. They've been ministered to by Jesus. And there's something about Jesus that's compelling. There's something about Jesus that's different. They have maybe been like Israel, where they've followed after worthless things. They've done dehumanizing things or experienced this sort of narrative that just leaves them out while the Pharisees and scribes of the religious establishment has created all these rules because what are they trying to do? They're trying to get this present age to be over so that the Messiah will come and the age to come will be here. But the Messiah will not come until Israel is pure. Israel has to be ready. And one of the things we for sure cannot do, good faithful Jews, good faithful Israelites, is we can't have table fellowship. We can't eat with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were hated because they sold out their own people because they were working for Rome, the colonizing oppressive force in the area. And the sinners were hated because they were sinners. They were notorious sinners. They were people who had done things that were public and they were exiled. But Jesus goes to them. Why? Look at what Jesus says about these sheep. The shepherd that finds that one lost sheep says, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek here because the Pharisees and scribes are righteous and they need no repentance. They're like what Jesus will describe later, the older brother. There's a younger brother who squanders his inheritance, who wishes his father to be dead, and then there's an older brother who stays there but has what we might call some anger issues in his heart because the father lavishes his love on this younger brother when he comes back. The father watches and looks and waits for, for this one lost one who was dead to be alive. The same with the coin. What woman, what poor woman who has 10 coins and loses one is not going to scrounge everywhere, is not going to light a lamp and look all over the floor and sweep the whole house to find that one lost coin. And Jesus says, so it is in heaven. There is rejoicing before the angels of God. And so now I present to you this picture of a God who has had enough with his people because they won't seek him anymore. And then there's this God who seeks after the, the sinner and finds them. My question to you is, are they two different gods? Are they two different gods? I'm going to give you the answer. No. This is called Marcionism. And I'm speaking about it because it's making a comeback in our day, just like those Dallas Cowboys. Boy, are they looking good. Just had to say that. Marcion was a second century. He wasn't in the church because he was excommunicated by his uncle, a bishop. But he believed that there was one God, the creator God of the Old Testament, who was capricious and mean and was all about law. And his name was Demiurge, which is a little weird. Don't name your dog Demiurge. So there's this God, creator God. And Marcion said, and Jesus was sent by this God of love that will save us and rescue us. And this 
Jesus and this God came to destroy Demiurge, the mean law God. And the church quickly and succinctly, because Marcion was an adept organizer and a charismatic fellow, several of the church fathers wrote against Marcionism to say, no, 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 there are not two gods. There is but one God who presides all over history, who loves the same way here as he does here, who judges the same way here as he does here, and we will see that at the end of time. And this one God seeks after sinners. To me, the beautiful and refuting thing to Marcionism and the little bow that will tie on the top of our sermon today is what St. Paul says in 1 Timothy. It's funny because Marcion said that none of the apostles understood the truth that, like he did except for Paul. And he accepted all of Paul's letters except the three pastoral epistles from which we read now. He said Paul's really the only one that gets this grace law thing. Now, we know that Paul would not have agreed with him. And here we have Paul, who was worthy to be rejected, a murderer, an insolent opponent, someone who was destroying the church, someone who the risen Lord Jesus said, you are persecuting me, Paul, Saul. Free name change. This evil guy was found trustworthy, he says of himself. I was found faithful when God came to me, when God came after me, the one, in order to display his patience and his kindness to all that would believe. And this is what Paul says. He says, I was found trustworthy, and my little child in the faith, Timothy, here's what I want you to hear, verse 15. This saying is, there's that word again, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In other words, Paul is quick to say if anyone deserves exile, if anyone deserves judgment, if anyone deserves God's wrath, it would be me, yet Because of the incarnation, because of God's gracious move of love to all of the world, in Christ Jesus, I am saved. I've been found faithful. I've been found trustworthy. And in his excitement at articulating God's great love for all of creation, this is how Paul finishes this moment. Look at verse 17. This is a beautiful doxology. To the king of ages. Now, remember what Marcion said, that there were two gods? Paul says, there's not a God of this age, this present age, and a God of the age to come. There is one king of the ages. Moreover, he says, he is immortal. He is invisible. He is the only God. And he is the one to whom honor and glory are to be in Greek, to ages of ages. So when we think about the span of history, God has been working and moving his purpose in these ages so that one day 
ultimately, all of us can be redeemed from the exile of sin and brokenness and death to be with him unto ages of ages. Hmm. The one who seeks and saves sinners is the king. The one who seeks and saves sinners is the only God, immortal and invisible. And tonight, as we baptize Naomi and Isabella, we are baptizing them into the life of this trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, immersing them into the love of God so that as they grow in wisdom and stature, they will grow into this faith. But to be sure, just like you and I already know, they're going to have to learn what it means to turn away from sin because even though we've been rescued, even though the, sh the shepherd has found us, that one lost sheep that stinks and we're down by the path that nobody walks on, even though we have been rescued, we have to turn still from sin and turn to our Savior. So there's this constant patterning of turning from and turning to. That's what we, by God's grace and the sacrament of baptism, will initiate Isabella and Naomi into. That is the covenant reality of the covenant community of the church that we'll baptize them into, that God will baptize them into tonight. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into the world to save sinners. Lord, thank you that if we have been forgiven much, we love much. Lord, we confess so often our love for you grows cold and that we forget you, our first love. So we pray, especially tonight, that as we witness and participate in the baptism of these two dear ones, that you would ignite in us by the power of your Holy Spirit a new and a fresh love for you. More so, Lord, as we renew our own baptismal vows to forsake all things and follow you. Lord, give us a new sense of purpose and direction and commitment. We pray all this in the name of your crucified, resurrected, and ascended Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.